Hi, horses. I'm here with Helen Dale to talk about cancel culture. Helen, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, Max. It's uh, quite late over here, pa actually past my bed bedtime, so I'm not quite sure how much sense I'll make, but uh, I'll do my best. Well, so who most are you? Your, sorry? Who are most you? Most of your audience won't know who I am or my background, but I'm reasonably well-known in Britain and very well-known in Australia. I'm a writer and a commentator and I became a commentator after a fairly lengthy period of legal practice. I mainly write legal commentary. And I became known originally, though, as a novelist. And my first novel, and I'll hold it up here so you can see the cover, won the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer Prize. And that's fiction. So it was novel writing. And I then later became known as a commentator, mainly a legal commentator. As a result of winning the Miles Franklin Award in Australia, I became the target of an attempted cancellation and it didn't work. And for what? All the attempt did was cause the book to become a very large bestseller. What did they, what, what were you trying to? What did they try to cancel you for? Um, I was a literary hoaxer, a racist, and a fraudster, uh, which is kind of to go with the hoax. They use those words interchangeably. And I had won the Miles Franklin Award under false pretenses uh, by pretending to be someone that I wasn't and that I'd also engaged in cultural appropriation and by writing a story that wasn't my own, all of those kind of things. However, I see. because it was the 90s, in the 1990s, you couldn't pre-cancel people the way you can now. You know how authors now, a book can There's some notice that a book is going to be published mm -hmm. and it's annoyed somebody or a group of people or whatever, and all they've got is snippets or little bits of detail a few pages maybe nothing more than that that's enough and then the book is withdrawn before it's even published this is a phenomenon that only exists in publishing now because it is so easy to go direct to print from electronic files uh, in the 90s you still had hot metal type so once a book had been set it was sent to the presses. It was like a newspaper and you couldn't pull it back. The publisher had already invested all the money in a publication. So attempting to cancel a book or an author after the book had been pub published and was already in the bookstores was basically impossible. You had to try to convince the bookstores to not stock it. And the only way to do that was violence. And that's what was done in many cases, although far from all with Salman Rushdie, with the satanic verses. But because I didn't attract violence, I just attract, attracted really nasty criticism, but there was no violence involved. All they did was turn the book into a very big bestseller. And uh, whilst I've written two subsequent novels that I think, because authors always have this view of their writing that I think are better, they've even added up the two subsequent books that 
book one of Kingdom of the Wicked and book two of Kingdom of the Wicked, even though I think they're better, they added up, have not sold as many copies as the first one. <laughs> well, not everything's about money, Helen. No, I know, but it's just taste. Right. Okay. And that, is that still... What is that still what people think when they think of you cultural appropriator? It feels like you've gone beyond that now. There's yeah, more. Yeah, it, it obviously, if you write other books and you write a lot of political and commentary type material, then that has faded because it is 29 years ago. Yeah. And so I've been known, come become known for other books and known for other things and other writing. But that was how I, I had the both the advantage and the disadvantage of becoming well-known in my 20s and making a lot of money. Yeah. But then I had, because at the same time as the controversy, I had won these major awards. The Miles Franklin is the most important one, but there were others as well. And so I then had this enormous, I had to live up to my own standard, and that's actually quite challenging as well. So... I, I moved past it, but I, I'm still, people come to me like you did with your comment, we'll talk about cancel culture, because mm. I perceive to have some insight into what it's like. But I always have to stress at the beginning that it was quite different in the 1990s from what it is now. It, it, in the old days, you probably remember this expression. They used to talk about there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah. Because, and that was true in 1995 when I won the Miles Franklin, that was true. I mean, the, true bad publicity, the bad publicity was unpleasant. Unpleasant. It was like being dogpiled on Twitter or, the, or, or those kind of things. Yeah, so yeah. it was certainly unpleasant, and I'm not going to deny that. But it also... It, it couldn't kill you. It couldn't kill me. It couldn't take your career away. Or it couldn't do any of that. Um, all it did was cause my book to become an enormous bestseller to be concrete, concreted onto the number one of the bestseller list in two countries for six months. Um, so what's what's your relationship with cancel culture now? I mainly get asked to write about it. And the experience and the, the approach I bring is the experience with my first book made me a strong proponent of both freedom of speech and civil liberties, but understood in the British rather than the American sense. So there are two sources of censorship in the British tradition, which ultimately stems from John Stuart Mill. There's the one that Americans are familiar with from the state, mm -hmm. so, which is what your First Amendment is designed to protect against. But there is also what Mill called the tyranny of prevailing thought and opinion, which is social or private or employer pressure to silence someone. So I was mm. always aware of those two different strands, forms of censoriousness. And I always struggled when I encountered Americans who tended to only have a great, have a great protection, but only from the state, not from private censorship or private bodies. And so people would ask me for my views and I would write about it. And there have been quite a number of major cases, litigation in the UK, uh, where people have been dismissed from their roles 
because of their views and then because Britain has different employment law, they've been had to be reinstated because the courts have ruled you can't dismiss someone for their views or for their religion or for their philosophical beliefs or so on and so forth. And Britain doesn't have contracts at will like exist in the United States. And so I've written quite a lot of material on that. Uh, how, how would you define cancel culture? The modern form is an attempt to impose reputational and economic harm or damage, chiefly by means of ostracism, on an individual on the basis of their political views. That to me seems to capture most of it, although it doesn't capture perhaps things like someone said a silly joke, that kind of thing. Maybe that doesn't isn't captured. But the silencing of someone for their views, and it's not just you have to shut up now and go away, it's let's get them sacked, let's get their songs taken off of streams, let's get their books unpublished, because that's something you can do now that you couldn't do historically. <laughs> uh, so we're not just withdrawn from sale. I mean, the, the only time now you see withdrawn from sale is when someone's book has, uh, there's a libel case, and then, then it will be taken literally physically from the bookshelves and, and returned to the publisher, and then the expression that used is pulped. But that's the, that's the only time it looks like something that might have happened many, many years ago. Now the particularly these young adult authors, their books, you never see them. You see the criticism and it's just a few pages or snippets of the work. It's no, no one has read the entire book. So it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a reputational attack. XYZ mm. is a nasty racist. XYZ is a this, that and the other. And there are some things that are just appalling uh, accusations are made about people, cr criminal offences and this kind of thing. But it's also economic take away the means that that person has to earn a livelihood, however that livelihood is earned. And Jay did tell me a little bit about you your own circumstances. You had your <laughs> YouTube channel taken from you. Yeah, uh, three times now. I mean, that's really, really grim. It is. It is. Things are looking grim for our hero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of money. All that money. I could have had all that money. It's all gone now. And it's the really... thing is, I know you mentioned earlier that money isn't everything, and that's true. But it's almost everything. It's the it's the joke you see on the coffee cups. Money doesn't buy. They say money doesn't buy happiness, but I'm willing to give it a try. Yeah. In, uh, in Psycho, that really a tycoon guy says you can't buy off... You can't buy happiness, but you can buy off unhappiness. Yes, that's another way of saying the same thing, I think. It, yeah. You can certainly make your life a lot less rotten if you yeah. have funds. Yeah. Uh, do you think... So I, I uh, sometimes when I talk about like police racism or systemic racism, I'll talk about how even if no one individually is trying to be racist, 
it racism can still happen with through the combination of a lot of different individuals behaving in what, whatever way they think is best. Do you think that cancel culture, your definition requires a active desire in individuals to hurt the career of the cancelee? Or is, can it, is it also like a, just an organic thing that happens where everybody thinks they're doing the right thing? No one thinks of themselves as I'm trying to inflict reputational damage on this person because I disagree with their political views. But that still just happens because of how things are set up. No, I think it requires, I mean, maybe I'm going to answer this and sound like a lawyer, but I think it requires the mens Intent. rea. Yes, oh. it requires the yeah. That's the express mens rea is the expression in, you, used amongst criminal lawyers. It requires a quality of intent. I okay. mean, people can still be very. I mean, you can have, for example, in a murder, you can have intention to kill, but you could also have recklessness. Now, recklessness is more serious than careless, simple carelessness. Otherwise, it would be a tort. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a crime. But you, you can have extraordinary recklessness that can lead to serious harm, but it tends to be coupled with other things in, in, a, in a violent crime like consumption of significant amounts of alcohol or drugs and that kind of thing. So it, mm -hmm. it, it finishes up um, it weakening the force of someone someone's intent. They're not thinking straight, and that can sometimes lead to a reduction in sentence. But I do think if people are going, oh, let's go and cancel this I'm not quite sure how the system works on YouTube, but let's go and get this fellow's channel deleted. And yeah, you just start reporting, reporting and videos. Reporting, and, and, and that requires you to physically do something. Uh, yes, I mean, but the, yeah, so they, so I specifically was canceled by, I call them neo-Nazis, white supremacists, who think I'm a pedophile. Uh, yes, I, I must admit I did see on Twitter, I, that's why I didn't want to say that word earlier, Earlier, but you said it, but uh, people were using, I mean, what they were calling you what British people say is a nonce. I saw this. Yeah, I've N heard nonce that. Nonce is the British term. It's and funny because just, it's, it's, it's so, um, it's, uh, it's so meaningless to Americans, but people will deliver it like it's the sharpest uh, jab. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very, it's very, it's like, it's like having an alien call you a slur in their language. It's very interesting. Because yeah. I can tell that you really wouldn't want to be called a nonce. Oh God, no! But but uh, but to us, it's like well, I don't. Yeah, it doesn't really. I mean, there is quite a funny story actually attached to that. There was an American company because apparently it means the word actually means something in finance, and the company's name was Nonce Finance, <laughs> and they wanted to set up a London office. And they suddenly discovered that they had to completely change their name and go through all the palaver at company's house. To they changed it to pedophile finance. <laughs> I don't know what they did, but that in order to get the stick of, and people were sort of going, oh, we've discovered that this means something, something really different in the UK. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, yeah. So people, so, okay. So if they think I'm genuine, oh, we can talk. We could talk about that more, but you people genuinely think I'm a pedophile. They think this Jewish pedophile is trying to ruin the country. We have to get him banned off of YouTube. Is that cancel culture? Because to them, they're not thinking I'm going to inflict reputational or financial damage because I don't like this person's political beliefs. To them, they're thinking this person wants to rape children and I'm going to stop them. He's trying to normalize pedophilia and we have to stop him. That, you know, if that's really 
what you think, then isn't there some there's some kind of that's no, that's, that's defensible cultural as well because the, the the simple thing is a lot of this stuff like various accusations of of people who sex offences of various sorts and so on and so forth that we we've, we've seen and it's turned out not to be true or the circumstances it's it, but they the think accusa- but, accu- accusing someone of a criminal offence when you haven't been convicted in but a being court a pedophile is not illegal I mean it's a they th- they don't think I um actually molest children they think i want to well i mean that's i'm sorry that's mind reading it's imputing to you they think i want to because of things i have said out loud wow this is bonkers Uh, it's my fault helen i did this to uh, myself i can't complain when people think i'm a pedophile i've said things that very few non-pedophiles would say now I think I'm just very daring and brave, but not everybody believes that. So if they gen okay, what if I were a pedophile, hypothetically? If I were a pedophile and I were saying we need to eliminate the age of consent. Well, you would it be Michel Foucault, wouldn't you? <laughs> that was one of his things. Involved uh, with this enormous petition in France to 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 drop the age of consent to four. They didn't teach us that in my philosophy class. I didn't know that. Uh, this is a lot would that of would that be would that be cancel culture if I was genuinely like we need to get rid of the age of consent? Well, the thing is, if you were arguing that you should drop the age of consent, people criticized Foucault at the time in France, but he wasn't dismissed from his position at the Collège de France. Um, and Sciences Po and the various other places he taught. He was criticised and people had a go at him in the French press and it was all part of wider debate in French society at the, ta- at the time. But he wasn't dismissed from his job because it would be seen as just as a view that he held. And it was not until after he died that there then became persistent rumours about his activities with underage boys in just North Africa. Okay. So the, but as long as, long as we're talking the, about just... You're you're saying that you you think YouTube should host as long as no one is actually committing any crimes out pedophiles arguing for the elimination of the age of consent and if they if they ban those people or people organize to have those people banned you would still file that under cancel culture. Um, it would depend if it was the actions of the company or organized mobbing i think there are differences there because we've produced a situation and i don't actually know i don't have a good solution to this that all of these things can be very um unnuanced the way they're discussed yeah it's genuinely difficult because we've produced these large internet platforms portals where basically everybody goes to a single provider of yeah. material and gets it from that single provider, they are then placed in an extraordinarily difficult position. Yeah, I th- well, yeah, they're like the government. They're, I well, think they be, I think the, I think they become the government. I think that they become like a public utility at that point. Maybe they do. I don't. Is you, I don't know enough about YouTube whether it's a public utility. I know Elon Musk calls Twitter at the public square. And mm-hmm. I do wonder, is it big enough? And I, yes, there have been legal arguments, including by one of your Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas, yes. thinking in terms of some of these 
corporates, admittedly he said this when Facebook was much bigger and had a much higher valuation than it does now, or the meta entity because it's got Instagram and WhatsApp and all these other subsidiaries underneath it. He was speaking in terms of a utility using that sort of language. I don't know whether he would still conceive of it in the same way now, um, given the, the loss of value across tech in the last 12 months. But, I mean, that is a certainly an arguable position in the United States. Um, it may even be an arguable position in China with, with companies that have we, Weibo, for example, Weibo, for example, just has completely control over the China, the whole of the Chinese yeah. market, and that's more than a billion people. Yeah. So this is very hard to do. I do have real difficulty with groups of people, like the people who got your channel banned, organising and massing in that way, uh, partly because it's got a similarity to something that emerged in the 19th century in Britain as as part of the trade union movement, but also as part of competition law and just competition between companies. Uh, when it refers to companies competing with each other, it's restraint of trade. And when it refers to trade unions doing it to a third party, it's called a secondary boycott. And the, the nub of it is, I am going to tell you that you are not allowed to trade with him. So you get... Company A, instead of the employees just not only there, just going out on strike, if Company A is selling product to Company B, the employees on strike at Company A go and pick at Company B so it's impossible for deliveries to take place. That's your classic secondary boycott scenario. Okay. And with restraint of trade, you tend to see it in the context of employment. You're working for someone because you have a particular skill, you can do something, you know, maybe you're a programmer or that kind of thing, and you get a better offer to go and work somewhere else for a higher salary. And the the way to prevent you from doing this is to sign a your original employment contract says, after you leave our company, you are not allowed to work in the same field for X number of years. So that's yeah. an example of restraint of trade. But it can also happen between companies like with the trade unions and so when you get mobs of people it does look like a they used to call them flying pickets you know because they would just go from enterprise to enterprise to gum up the wheels of commerce and stop things being lit often because it was parts and things like that stop things being made and i had that was recognized to be whether the corporate sector did it or unions did it that was recognised to be a bad thing in the 19th century. And I don't like it being done now on social media. And to my way of thinking, I think it's actually the worst aspect of the, the, the cancel culture. And so it's the most unpleasant part of it, the mobbing. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying uh, that's like a value thing. I mean, like you... You, there's no way to really stop people from doing that other yes, than to there isn't i mean i'm just uh, well no 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 i i'm I, is there is there a way to stop it i don't know there is when people do it physically there certainly has been in the past but certain things for example this is one you see on twitter i don't know how much you use use twitter but twitter is I, my main so, social i social use twitter media account. 
yeah I, I mean i saw you you retweeted me earlier so yeah. it, it's my main social media account and people have these block lists enormous yeah. block lists with thousands of people on them and the number of people i've encountered and for me, it's not a particularly vast number because I am a relatively moderate centre-right commentator in the context of British politics. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's safe for me to go on the BBC, for example. I was on the BBC last week, uh, I, which is the British equivalent of your NPR. So I know moderate, what the BBC is, okay. A very moderate conservative. Okay. Um, so, but I, the number of times... I've gone to, to someone's profile on Twitter and I'm blocked and I've never had any engagement with them yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just on a block list. Now, apparently, according to a technical, now maybe you correct me if I'm wrong here, according to a technical friend who is knowledgeable about this sort of thing, Musk's plan to charge people for access to the Twitter API will destroy all the block lists. You will not just be able to block everybody who follows Max Carson on Twitter right, anymore. You have, to, you have to manually. You would have to have to do it manually. And personally, if that is the effect, I agree that that's a good change because you should only really be blocking someone on Twitter if they're rude to you. Right. Not if you decide you are not only going to dislike block them, but block their 10,000 followers as well just because they follow this person. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So you could, there's ways to like not facilitate it, the, the mob formation mm. or disincentivize it. Disincentivize it. Yeah. But you can't really stop it. You, you're not going to stop people. I mean, the, the what are the two third rails? You've just mentioned the two third rails. Neo Nazis or white supremacists, I mean, they are political scientists say there is a difference because. White supremacists that are hostile against people who are not white, whereas mm -hmm. neo Nazis are hostile to anyone who isn't Aryan, and so that's a a, a difference. And that's how they they can scoop up Jews and Gypsies who are and who are white people and some Slavs as well, Russians for example, and they're all white. Um, whereas the white supremacists, it's a more narrowly targeted and more distinctly American group, but. They're just sort of the poison of politics, the poison political group. But then the other poison of crime that just about everybody agrees is a bad thing is is kitty fiddling, nonsense, ped pedophilia. Um, mm. And these are the two third rails of debate now. Nazis versus been, pedos. Well, I don't know whether it's Nazis versus pedos, but they're things that you really don't want to be accused of, either of them. Yeah, <laughs> it's guaranteed to make your life pretty unpleasant if you're accused of one of those. It it is pretty unpleasant. It is pretty unpleasant. Mm. Yeah, I can't rec I can't recommend it. No, I mean, I and I have seen. I had a couple of tiny little hints of what a modern cancellation must be like, but they're only very small hints. They're nothing like what you've experienced. I wrote a contentious piece to the Spectator. 2019 and it became controversial it was contentious and i trended on british twitter for two days and the the article was retweeted five thousand times and i had people that i mean i 
it turned it wasn't just a, a mob against me it turned into a mob in my mentions because people were taking sides but the whole thing was an utter conflagration and my twitter was unusable for a week i just had to give up there was no way i was going to be able to use this um and i looked at that and i just thought this is just a giant waste of my time and everybody else's time and it's really horrendous i think Imagine that's a, if it, a lot of the goal is to waste your time yes that's very true i think yeah because it did waste my time it made oh, my yeah. phone unusable i had to delete the app and yeah and then I thought, my God, imagine if this wasn't just for a week. Imagine if it was for a month or three months or six months. Yeah. They do get tired eventually. But it takes a really long time. Mm. But yes, I struggle to see, based on the little bit that I know of you, I watched your interview with Holly Lawford-Smith, who's, who's from us, who, who, who I know. And... I struggled to see, I mean, and and thought, person seems perfectly reasonable. And, well, that's, and, and, and that's going, I think that's going a little far. a YouTube channel banned. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's fucked up. Um, I mean, have you got any chance of getting it back? Have you, I, I, is there yeah, someone I, you can talk to? No, I don't. That's the other. I mean, that really bothers me is that you make them all this money and then they won't even give you a phone call. Like, there's no, or an email address of a person. There's no human you can talk to at YouTube um, unless you're like really big. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I have somebody who says they're willing to advocate for me, uh, who I, who I know through somebody else. Um, but they were like, w but I need a name of somebody at YouTube on the creator side who I can reach out to. And I, I can't, I can't find, uh, anyone can't find a human to this, talk this, to. This whole system and I, not about YouTube, but I can comment to a degree with a degree of knowledge about two others, Facebook, Facebook and Twitter with this trying to get hold of a person thing. I spent a couple of years as chief, as chief of staff to a parliamentarian in Australia, and the tech companies, but in this case, because it was a few years ago, it was both Facebook and Twitter, made a big play to get well-known politicians, uh, well-known commentators, to get them using the platform regularly. Yeah. We actually had in Canberra, in Parliament House, in my senator's rooms in Canberra, in the Australian Parliament House, we had an employee of Twitter come to us and talk to both my senator and to me, because I, I had a public reputation as well as a well-known novelist, about getting us blue, the blue tick, um, teaching us how to use the full features of the platform giving us her contact details and email address if we had difficulties with people impersonating us. Now, that admittedly was in 2015 or 16, around about there. Mm -hmm. So that was Twitter. Similarly, both the parliamentarian I worked for and, and I, uh, because we were public figures in Australia, were approached by Facebook to give us what they used to call a shielded account 
and then is later called the, the cross-check account, which made it much, much more difficult for you to be banned by Facebook for accidentally showing a breastfeeding. One of the big ones was that they were anti-boob, so they were breastfeeding mums were, were not allowed and that, that kind of thing. They, they had a real boob problem, whatever reason, which Australians always find hilarious because people breastfeeding public in Australia are all the time nobody cares so um so and that that was the companies deliberately doing that deliberately making life easier for people who they sort of wanted on their team who were influential who were legislators who were legal advisors to legislators or who were commentators public figures in some way that's twitter and um Facebook, if YouTube isn't doing the same thing and playing the same sort of game, I will be very, very surprised indeed. Mm -hmm. Wait, so what are you saying? I don't understand. The point that I'm making is yeah. that they will be make themselves available to people to whom they want to make themselves available to, and everybody else can go and fly a kite. As the expression you used with YouTube, unless you're really big. YouTube, yeah. it probably is just size. It's not, are you a parliamentarian or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just size. Yeah. But my understanding is you had a pretty big channel on YouTube. I got, yeah, I, I had like 40,000 subs, but um, I was probably getting the engagement of a, of a significantly larger channel because, uh, I don't know, people like my videos or they don't like them. They like, they watch them. I don't know they hate like. they either love watch or hate watch. Yes, yeah. that's a thing that happens. Yeah. Um, because I do know I know some very fairly big YouTubers in the UK. I know Marcus Meekin, Count Dankula. He has a million subscribers, and he tweeted the other day um, a picture of like a trophy that YouTube had sent to him mm -hmm. um, for having a million subscribers. And I also know Constantin Kizan and Francis Foster run Trigonometry, and they have half a million. But they're probably the two biggest YouTube, the, the two biggest channels, because one of them is run by two chaps and the other one is one person, where I actually know the people involved. And even in the past, Marcus, Marcus Meek and Count Dankula, has had problems with constant strikes against... Yeah, people really his, hate him. ...his videos... It seems to have gone off now, but he did have a really bad run with it. And that's uh, the mass reporting that you were talking about. Yeah, all because of his Nazi dog, I guess. He made his, he taught his girlfriend's pug to do a Nazi salute. He did. Seriously, not the wisest thing to do. It, it was funny, but it was very unwise, if it's possible to say that. At the same time, it's possible to have a very good but unwise joke, and that is an example. Yes. But that's that mass reporting culture again. But yes, I, I don't know what you can do to to try to get a YouTube channel back when the oh, yeah, when you've got pretty good evidence. But I did look a little bit of it up. I, I mean, I, I don't really follow these things because I'm British and I'm an older generation where people wrote for newspapers and magazines, and in my case, I still do. Um, but... It it seems pretty clear that the people who were reporting you were 
politically, the the, the leadership yeah, yeah. of them, even if not the main group, were pretty horrid types. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, the last time I got I got on band after four months. Um, they banned me for four months for a video that uh, my cuties review. Which is, oh, I saw a little reference to this, but I know, couldn't sort of track it all down. It was that's the, what started. The, that's what started the pedophile accusations. The, so the cuties review was taken down and put, and then reinstated by YouTube. Uh, I think two or three times, um, and then they just banned my whole channel. And then it was four months later. They just emailed me one morning and were like, "Upon further review, we've dis- discovered that your channel does not." actually break the terms of service and some you know sometimes it takes us a little time to get things right but it's like yeah it's like it's like your career is just like on hold whenever so and you stop earning income for four months of your life yeah so this is where we get back to the point the economic punishment it's not just reputational it's economic and then there's the growth like you know what uh, economists call opportunity cost yes and what lawyers contract lawyers call loss of a chance yes yeah uh have you heard about hb20 that texas social media law no no uh, this is the thing you've got another large english language country and whilst people in britain probably pay too much attention realistically to the united states we still pay the most attention to our own local politics that totally makes sense but this may change the world texas i'm not a lawyer so i don't really know what i'm talking about but texas i'm a lawyer but i'm not an american lawyer as i always say (laughs) texas has created enshrined into law that a social media company with more than 50 million monthly users cannot ban somebody because of their political beliefs that's basically first applying first amendment jurisprudence to a private company yes uh this law was finished up in scotus yeah yeah it 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 was struck down and then this the blocking of it went to the supreme court they upheld the block but then the block was removed. It was only five to four, though. And then the block, I think, was removed. And now it's technically active, but uh, tech companies have asked the Supreme Court to deliver an opinion on it. But, um, yeah, the law says that... I don't fully understand how the American system works, but all common law systems, you're not allowed to just get an opinion from the superior court you can in roman law systems but not in a common law system like the united states so that means there has to be what's called a proper controversy which means presumably it's going to be litigated before scotus and both parties will be represented the texas attorney general and somebody else the tech companies okay so they they want to use it perhaps as if in british law this is called a test case yeah to, to to see what the law is now, please, Max's listeners, if there are any American lawyers out there, I am sure I have totally and utterly hashed that up. I am a Commonwealth trained lawyer, a British, British, I've most recently practiced in the UK. Um, 
So if I have made a complete mess of that, I apologize. I am not an American lawyer. <laughs> we accept your apology. <laughs> um, yeah. So if that goes through, then um, it might force a lot of um, big changes in moderation. It would be extraordinary, yes. Yeah, but I think it makes sense. I would like to go through. The argument um, for it was that, because uh, they keep saying it's the First Amendment right of the company to restrict speech as they see fit. Mm. But the judge it's a said... company, yeah. Yeah, well, the judge said you can't have this immunity from the speech of your users and say when a user posts something that's not the company talking we're not the publisher mm -hmm. and then also claim that you have a first amendment right to stop them from speaking you can't have it both ways you can either be the publisher in which case you're responsible for everything everybody says or you cannot be the publisher in which case you are more like a utility and you shouldn't be censoring the speech of americans that is one area where if, if you've summarized it to me accurately and i suspect you have that is one area where American law and British law is the same. It draws a distinction between publishers and non-publishers, basically, which yeah. is why newspapers are not just newspapers, publishing companies and magazines. And I, I have worked in, in uh, newspapers, publishing companies and magazines in, in, in various, various points in my life, not just as a freelancer, but inside in the editorial department. We had lawyers and there are times when I have been that lawyer when I've been the person who legals people's articles and the thing you're always looking for is libel, 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 is this libelous, you know? And it, because Britain doesn't have New York Times and O'Connor, basically it has much tougher libel laws, you have to genuinely be very careful because it's a great way to finish up bankrupt at the end, If particularly if it's a really awful accusation like the ones you've had directed at you. If someone did that to a British person in Britain and it wasn't true. It was just based on opinion and an opinion you'd written the review of a film and not anything you'd actually done. Well, there would, there would be problems. <laughs> it would be bad. It would be, I don't think court I... number 10 and the Royal courts of justice, they'd be rubbing their hands and saying, Oh, we're going to beat that libel case. <laughs> Maybe I don't, I, I, uh, you haven't seen the review. Let's just put it that way. No, no, that is true. I know I seem very mild mannered right now, but I have other this there's other sides to me. Yes, I struggle to see how even a pornographic review, if you weren't actually doing it yourself, mm -hmm. you have not committed the crime. It's not a crime, but it's I think I think if at okay, so the the movie I thought was trying to sexualize children have you seen cuties no okay no and uh, i remember the controversy on the internet about it and thought yeah so it's like not my type of film so i won't watch it okay so it's like 11 year olds twerking uh like like as if they were in a rap music video and i was like you know they're 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 kind of hot it's it's uncomfortable and it's it's challenging and it's weird and it makes you feel weird and like bad about yourself but they are kind of hot like i we should basically just admit that i've i've seen some reviewers in respectable british maybe it's because british media is more diverse actually make that point they use that 
uh, to criticise the film. They said, yeah, you, yes. you probably shouldn't want to make the kids look like this. It doesn't, it undermines the message, which was supposedly against child sexualization. I have seen reviews say very similar things in the UK. I think it's, I think, yeah, I think I'm saying things that would be okay in a newspaper or a magazine, but for some reason, YouTube and Twitter, even Twitter, less so, but still have a much more puritanical, uptight, uh, like advertiser-friendly morality in the user base. So it's an extreme, like, like there's there's been YouTubers who get called a pedophile because they sexted with a 17-year-old when they were 20. Oh, dear Lord. I um, Romeo and Juliet laws anyway. Yeah, well... If there's images in the United States, it's still illegal to to have naked pictures of a 17 year old. But most, but like no, I no, I really don't think anybody would be prosecuted for that if they were 20. I don't think they really care. Um, but yeah, they'll call you they'll call you a pedophile for that. That's extraordinary. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing is, it's not just advertiser friendly and blandness because it was the blandness on Facebook that why breastfeeding mums couldn't put pictures of themselves on there. It was this sort of commitment to blandness. Um, it's not just that. It's the death of all nuance and any attempt to complexify an argument or ideas. Um, I do know, admittedly, this was before Musk took over, although um, I don't think I've particularly changed the way I used Twitter since, since he took over, is yeah. I always had a policy that any time I wanted to make a complex or difficult point, I would never do it on Twitter. It would finish up in journalism somewhere. It would be in yeah. it would be in um, a, a long form magazine article or in a newspaper. Or, That's smart. Yeah, I did that deliberately, and I would periodically say because people would follow me on Twitter. I, get a rush of a thousand new followers because I've written some big feature somewhere that said something a bit edgy. And then they would expect me to say it on Twitter. And over the next sort of month or so, all those new followers would bleed away. And I got that way. I would have to make announcements. I am not going to be pointlessly spicy on Twitter and get myself banned. Mm -hmm. If you want difficult, thought-provoking ideas, then take out a subscription to The Spectator or to the telegraph or whichever outlet it was the article was in and i did that deliberately it's why I, as one sort of conservative i just never had any issues with people trying with, with getting banned on twitter because i never said anything that was particularly um con controversial but i did put quite controversial stuff in my articles and i did have that time in 2019 where a spectator article of mine trended on twitter and because people had actually read the article and really disagreed with what I had said. Yeah, I think I'm protesting also by by deliberately saying things that are not socially accepted as um, where where the nuance level is not. I'm trying to push the envelope, I guess, of uh, how well, yes, how I nuanced mean, you can be in what. Well, young people have always been edgy. Well, and well, I think they should be edgy. I mean, they're a bit edgy. I you think got, so too. Because uh, you got Plato complaining about young people in bloody ancient Athens being edgy. So I mean, it's obviously an ongoing phenomenon. Yeah. Um, 
Cicero complaining about the kids not standing up for their teachers and Dante complaining about kids not standing up for their teachers. And I mean, so you know, pick a civilization. I'm sure, I mean, I just know the European ones because of my academic background, but I'm sure there were similar things in China and India and, and other civilizations with the great literary tradition would have had this. And so, and if there's one thing, uh, going to head, have to head off fairly soon. But if there's one thing that does worry me a little bit, it's if anything, young people aren't like that. It's scary. Now. Yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing. Is I, is I, They're I'm, not like that now. Right. I can, I'm very disturbed by this. Um, I, I'm 37. And a lot of my audience members on YouTube would be telling me I'm going too far it's it's really scary watching yes, the, conform the, the conformity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And young people think that they are that they all hate themselves too because they all they all think there's something wrong with them because they're thinking non-YouTube thoughts and having non-YouTube feelings and I I'm, it's really disturbing. And the thing is you see you're 37 which yeah. to, seems quite young to me because I'm 51. But it's interesting that even given the age gap between us, both of us have that sense and probably can remember it from when we were high school age of younger yeah. people being much more rebellious. I don't know yeah. what your high school was like, but I certainly can remember that younger people, I was high school in the 80s and my first year at university was 1990. And I can remember young people a being much more rebellious but also they did have things to rebel against i was in a part of australia that was very very conservative had a very conservative authoritarian government but queensland was notoriously they used to call it the deep north in australia and it was a comment about the sort of government that it had so young people had something to resist as well it wasn't they weren't just making it up they don't want to resist youtube no, it's very odd that. I mean, I'm not young, so it's very difficult to get inside somebody else's head. You can, but you have to sit down and talk to an awful lot of people. I mean, what's the age profile of the people who watch your show? Are uh, they younger probably, than you or your age? Or? They're a little younger, probably like 18 to 30 would be the main demographic. But there's people who are older than me, and I assume some people who are under 18. But I've, that's been not probably less so now that I'm banned from YouTube. It requires a little more uh, work to watch me now. Um, yeah. So, yes, I mean, all I can do is just sort of throw my hands up and say, I don't really know what has caused this. I mean, there's all these theories about safetyism and so on and so forth. But um, I mean, Eve, there's always been a counterculture and suddenly there really isn't. And uh, yeah. Uh, and it's not just in political ideas. I was reading a piece by the jazz writer, writes about uh, jazz music mainly, Ted Gioia, and he was saying that there's no counterculture. And it's Everything's just been blandified, and it's really, really hard to find a genuine, and this is in the context of music, a genuine musical counterculture. I think uh, I'm a rapper. I'm a rapper. And... I think my music is genuinely controversial. It is, it's a genuine, it's genuinely rebellious. And I think that uh, 
people are really surprised by that because the I really like Eminem, and there he was, isn't. He was very good. I mean, he was the Seamus Heaney, the Nobel Prize winning for literature, the poet, always said that Eminem could really write. That yeah. guy can really write. But there's really the, good words together. Well, the good, the really good younger newer writers and music today are not controversial there isn't like a there isn't a new m&m m&m's yeah. close to my age he's well in his 40s now isn't he he's 50 right okay so yeah he's about my age then yeah yeah i mean it's i find that hard to believe yeah i i think of i associate someone like m&m with being top of the pops when i was you know, sort of quite young, and then I realise he's the same age as me, and it, it, it's I get that the same sort of really awful sensation when people who were big in the eighties, like when Prince died or David Bowie and that kind of thing, it's sort of like, oh my god, these were the people I had posters of on my walls at yeah in high school, that kind of thing. And I mean, uh, one last comment before I go: the one that really shocked me, and it's not a death in this case, but the pictures of Madonna from the recent thing, I didn't recognize her. And I mean, Madonna was up there with Michael Jackson in the eighties as the yeah. biggest artist. She was, she was definitely a uh, very, very big for me when I was a kid. Yeah. Massive. And then yeah. I saw the picture of a most recent thing and she's had all this work done and I've got, I got the same awful sense that I did obviously some years ago now with when Michael Jackson did the same thing and his entire face just transformed awful and i just looked at it because i was having that thing of i know what madonna looks like i have watched so much of madonna in my life you know? yeah but she's gone it's the face is just like a it's not her waxworks yeah it, it is like a waxwork yeah well that's been an interesting chat finished up with madonna after after all the stuff about censorship first but it is now midnight and I'm afraid I'm going to have to go. Otherwise I shall turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> well, we wouldn't want that. Thank you so much for coming, Helen. That's I really okay. appreciate, really appreciate no it. No problem, it's, uh, Max. It's great to talk I hope to you. you get your, I hope you get your channel back. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, I, yeah. I appreciate the well wishes. Take care and, and keep well. And I hope you get to use your good studio for something to a larger audience. <laughs> yeah. One day. Okay. All right. See you later. Take care. Bye, Helen. Bye.